Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. For episode four, Pod Called Quest uncovers George's dark past, shedding light on W.B. Du Bois's insights about why it has much to do with wealth is with race and asks whether it's time to lower the fir- race first flag, askew politics with labels, right versus left, rate red staters versus blue staters, Democrats versus Republicans, urban versus rural, progressive versus conservatives, blacks versus whites, and follow Alexandria Casia-Cortez's lead by zeroing in on economic equality, housing, health care, climate equity, education, and other issues that everyday working people care about. The short-term play may be winning two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia. The long-term play, however, is building coalitions that unify rather than divide and then empower us to uplift working people and pull American democracy back from the brink. Sage, get us started, man. Yo, what's happening, science? How you, man? Yo, good, man. Good, good. Well, you know, we we back again uh, at it. And, uh, you know, right now, uh, Georgia is on my mind and uh, <laughs> everybody else's mind. Man, you know that, you know that uh, Ray Charles tune, man, Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through. Just an old sweet song that keeps Georgia on my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, right now, man, that 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 sweet song, not the only thing that got George on my mind, but it's also uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. And, uh, you know, he's he's been a, a subject of several of our conversations, and, and I think he's going to certainly figure into the one today. Uh, but actually, where I want to begin is with a statue that is located in downtown Atlanta, a monument to one. Henry W. Grady. And Henry W. Grady's statue, having survived BLM efforts to add it to the scrap heap of fallen Confederate icons, stood witness to something he most certainly would have disapproved. Black female governor of Georgia. Well, Scratch that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking. In, I'm thinking of an alternative history. A, a black female that would have been governor of Georgia. I should have said, mm. working with a black uh, female mayor of the city of Atlanta, where the statue stands, to get out votes that carried a black woman across the finish line to become vice president elect of the USA. Grady was a journalist, an orator, and according to the statue uh, uh, inscription, a patriot who called for a new South, a South that was going to maintain white dominance over blacks while settling, while, while setting the terms of cooperation with Northern businesses that had been coming to the South for wealth. And this was at the end of the 19th century. And Grady's legacy was not merely about racism, although he was indeed a spokesperson for white supremacy science, but Mm. it was a legacy that emphasized the role that racism played in the never-ending quest for wealth and profit on the part of a few plutocrats. Mm. And this, according to Du Bois, essentially was George's post-slavery and post-reconstruction formula for economic dominance. And on Du Bois's reading of Grady's legacy, which he talks about at some length in a piece that Du Bois published on Georgia in The Nation, 1924, he essentially sums up Grady's legacy as creating optimal conditions for Northern and Southern industrialists to become enormously wealthy. And the trick was to develop a class of dependable labor, a submerged submerged class of poor poor blacks and whites. So as George is on everybody's mind, George is on my mind, and I know George is on your mind, science, I'm thinking about 
this version of George's past that we get from Du Bois that centers a narrative that highlights not just race, but race for profit. And I know you've been thinking about Georgia too, man. So what's on, what's on your mind right now before we get started? Yo, when you first hit me to the, um, the Du Bois piece, right? It was just like, you know, he writes, he writes so well. And so I was, I was ready to be taken on a journey, but, um, uh, and then kind of prepped by dark water. I was definitely prepared for his usual deep dive, but I wasn't exactly expecting where this was going to be going. I got a bunch of relatives from Georgia too. So I think, um, I was already kind of primed to explore the, the peach tree <laughs> crazy place it is. Um, but it was, a, it was amazing because, um, it's kind of got this, it's kind of got this subversive message to it with regards to, you think you understand how something's structured or going on, but let me reveal something else to you. And it just kind of took back the veneer of, so Georgia for me, I mean, being from New York, going down South was always like a big issue, right? And like interacting with relatives and stuff down there, but it was always kind of a mysterious space in the sense that I wasn't, I didn't quite care. Like, you know, you, you stick me in the Bronx from Manhattan. I have an idea. You stick me in Brooklyn. I have an idea. Queens. I got an idea. Strong Island. got an idea. You stick me in Atlanta. I don't quite know what's going on, how people are talking, what they're referencing. And so I was always a little bit, I found it to be a mysterious place in many respects, but, um, what I find Du Bois doing is kind of like pulling back the curtain a little bit and revealing this discussion between Northern capital and Southern industry that I just found to be fascinating and kind of scary with regards to what it is that we don't know. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, this, this pulling, this pulling back the curtain. I mean, you know, this is a theme, uh, 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 a, a, an important theme in Du Bois. He's all about articulating or helping us understand the, the voices from within the veil. And in this piece on Georgia, he pulls back this curtain. And what we find behind the curtain is some interesting things. And one, one set of things we find, I think, really take us back to the conversation we had last time, where we raised the question, is the progressive black left being somewhat irresponsible by flying the race first flag. Mm -hmm. And I think that this piece by Du Bois on Georgia, uh, along with our reflections on the current significance of Georgia, I mean, for our audience, everybody knows what the deal is, right? We're still trying to get the final count on the ballots for the election that just happened. And it appears that Georgia is going to be running uh, headed for a Senate runoff where there are going to be two outstanding Senate seats. And so we're still trying to figure out the tally, but it looks like Georgia's going blue. Uh, that is going to be a state that's going to be supporting or has supported Biden and, and Kamala Harris. Um, and now it's going to be at the center of everybody's attention for the next month and a half until January when the Senate runoff takes place. And of course, if these two states, based on everybody's estimates right now, if these two states go go uh, for the Democrats, then there'll be essentially a, a tie in the Senate and ha Harris will be the, the tiebreaker. So Georgia is in the spotlight right now. And Du Bois pulls back a curtain that takes us back to our question about whether the black left is being irresponsible for flying the race first flag. And on an initial read of Du Bois's piece, his diagnosis of the problem, at least back in 1924, was that race is a problem because it's instrumental for helping industrialists generate wealth by exploiting black and white laborers. Mm. And race is a tool to facilitate that, that exploitation. And so that's sort of the glimpse of what we get behind the veil, which is clearly connected to our question about whether flying the race first flag is a distraction. I mean, the phrase, the economic utility of race hate just like hit me because you just you just sitting there thinking of all these folks that are focused on race and ethnicity and identity. And you're just like, oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. 
the thing that we're putting first and foremost is the sideshow to the main event mm. that is economic exploitation. That's phenomenal. Yes, yeah, sideshow indeed. I mean, now again, I think we gotta we gotta dig gotta dig deeper here. Um, mm. But the basic narrative is not going to be unfamiliar to some readers. Um, we have to think about wealth. We have to think about who profits from racism. And we have to think about the way racism serves as a tool to help basically the rich stay rich and get richer. Now, the connection, of course, here is that the, the wealth is generated by being able to pay people low wages for their labor. It's being generated by having a labor force that you don't have to provide adequate health care for, uh, which, of course, takes away from the bottom line if you got to pay for it. And it's generated by basically setting up circumstances so that wealth can travel easily, not only across state borders, but across across global borders. And you remember when we were teaching Angela Davis, we were sort of stuck on this beautiful phrase, turn of phrase that we found in Davis, the homelessness of global, the homelessness of capital, global mm -hmm. capital, right? And so it's this homelessness of capital, right? That she talks about now, but Du Bois was thinking about it in 1924. And the homelessness was about the way in which the Northern Titans of industry could come South That's right. in search of greater profit. And what Georgia did and what Grandy sort of paved the way for was to create the conditions in Georgia for the North to be able to come down with business and to guarantee them a good return on their investment by having a very dependable labor force that was going to be divided by the race first flag. Right. In this case, flown by the white supremacists. Right. But of course, we got different people flying the flag for progressive purposes today. And that's something we want to certainly interrogate as well, as you're going to point out. Yeah. 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 I mean, Du Bois got this great phrase, man. He goes, um, he's like, uh, what's the question? Um, how will the brotherhood, the brotherhood of, of white business people handle the Negro and white men in the same organization? Answer. How do the capitalists or employers handle them to the employer? A working man is nothing but a profit producing animal. And he doesn't care a snap of his finger what the animal's color is, white, black, red, brown, or yellow, native or foreign, religious or unreligious, so long as he, the worker, has strength enough to keep the logs coming and the lumber going, that is all the bosses want or ask. It is only when they see the slaves uniting, when all other efforts to divide the workers on the job have failed, that we hear a howl go up as to the horrors of social equality. Mm. Not until then do we really know how sacred to the boss and his hirelings is the holy doctrine of white supremacy. Mm. 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 I, I read that many, many times, man. That's powerful. And, you know, this is this is a delicate maneuver, I think, man, because it's it's really important to take care. I mean, not to not to sort of misunderstand things. It's not as if white supremacy doesn't matter. Right? It clearly matters. So like one way to sort of capture the celebratory moment that we're in, or as we as we sort of look at how Georgia seems to be turning at this moment from red to blue, is not that there's no story to be told about uh, having overcome a past, a racial past, where Georgia clearly has, at least in the national imagination, been a place that uh, was at the center of, you know, the dominance of, of white, white supremacy. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not to deny that, but it's to sort of put it into some context to help us see that there were some reasons for why race played the role that it did. And, you know, in Du Bois's sort of piece, I mean, he, the subtitle is Invisible Empire State, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how did Georgia build that empire, right? And his sort of analysis is, again, is it built the empire by putting itself forward as having 
a vast submerged class, to use Du Bois's language, of dependable labor. Mm. In his terms, a half million brawny Negro workers and a half million poor whites. Mm -hmm. right? And so there was an investment in whiteness to keep this class divided and also putting them at odds with one another by making them compete for work. And this was George's magic formula for maintaining white supremacy and black inferiority after slavery had ended, while at the same time figuring out a way not to give in completely to the North and allow it to set the terms of interaction with the South by basically investing in the development of this cheap labor force, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of the complicated picture. And of course, complications are difficult for the Twitter world, right? Where you only get a couple characters, man, to lay out what you're thinking. Yo, I, I think that the, the subtlety of the the subtlety of the the spin though is real significant, right? Because nowhere in this piece do you get the sense that the 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 small group of moneyed capital individuals actually believe in racism or white mm. supremacy. Mm. They don't actually believe in inferiority. They believe that saying such things is instrumental for getting this other need met. I mean the phase the phase Georgia is feeding the flame of race, hate, race hatred with economic fuel. So they don't actually believe that. That's the thing. It was like, it was real subtle. He just kind of moved right through it. So racism, white supremacy, race baiting, all of these things are instrumental to, towards this other end. And that was subtle, but he just moves through it. And then, and then with that revelation, you then end up just kind of, moving to a bunch of different directions about what the implications of that are for understanding what people mobilize around, understanding what people and don't and don't mobilize around what they, what people things talk about, what people don't talk about. That was just I thought. Amazing. Well, man, I think that's a leap that some of our audience is certainly not going to take with you. Mm -hmm. uh, if, in fact, they'd be appalled by it. I mean, I think in particular. Look, I think it's one thing to sort of acknowledge that white supremacy was instrumental on Du Bois's story for understanding how Georgia built its in invisible empire um, by creating optimal conditions for plutocrats to grow their wealth from suggesting that some of the players involved didn't actually embrace white supremacy. Right. As yeah. an ideology. I mean, I, I don't think people going to take that leap with you because you could just think, no, they were definitely racist. There was a lot of race hatred going on. There's no question about that. We got like historical evidence that we could bring to bear on that. Right. Mm -hmm. Even people like Henry Grandy. Right. Who, who was a journalist. He, he went on record many times for basically uh, pronouncing the superiority of whites over blacks. Mm -hmm. But it's a further sort of point to say that they also recognize that that view had instrumental value. Okay. You see? No, interesting distinction. I mean, yeah, I mean, so it's one thing to suggest that um, folks were just, uh, <laughs> they had no belief, they just had green. Yes. And, and they pursued the green um, by, by fanning these flames of racial hatred as opposed to it being a joint consideration. It's like, well, we think these people are animals and we can make money. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't see the, I don't see the necessity for having to make my instrumentalist pitch, but that said, I'm kind of like for all, for all intents and purposes, at least for this discussion, I'm going to maintain that position. I, I don't, I don't think they really care about belief. I think, I think they just care about exploitation and profit. And mm -hmm. in that context, they'll use whatever they need to, because they seem to have no problem acknowledging mm -hmm. that they needed white and black labor to do stuff. So mm -hmm. in that context, they're just like, okay, well, they might be animals, but you know, they, uh, we, we still need them for this economic function. I was like, well, I'm like, make up your mind. Are they the animals or, 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 or the, the mm -hmm. so the beasts of burden, but you need them for industry. And then at a certain point, you know, Du Bois identified the fact that they had um, pre, 
was like pre-war awareness of kind of like um, not manufacturing, but machines or something like that. And so, um, you know, is this is this simply a function of like the Booker T kind of like, you know, teach teach the Negro how to do certain things and they can do it, but it doesn't make them doesn't necessarily make them human. But I'm like, uh, they, I, I see indifference in many respects with regards to, you know, like what they are. They're just means to get to this particular end. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know, again, I mean, I, I'd be anxious to hear what some of our listeners are going to say about this, but but I see I see the point. So so the thing is, you've got I think then this clear diagnosis in Du Bois that suggests that the 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 problem the the central thing at least in Georgia in 1924 was not race hatred, but but it, it was as he put it, successful industry and commercial investment in race hatred for the yeah. purpose of profit. And so the question that we're raising is, is that still a good diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Almost a hundred years after the day where he wrote that, is that still good diagnosis? And if it is, right, and what we ultimately want to do is sort of undo this, how do we go about doing it? What's the means to go about undoing it? Now, are there any lessons we can find in looking back to Georgia 100 years ago, Du Bois's interpretation of its dark past. Are there any lessons we can draw from that to help us think about where we are now and how to move forward? And it seems to me, science, there's one thing that he puts on the table that is somewhat useful. In this piece, he he astutely recognizes that so long as race White supremacy continues to be the defining issue in politics. It's going to be very difficult to develop some broader working class unity of the kind that he thinks is ultimately necessary to focus on this target of plutocratic wealth generation. And so what, what he discusses the so-called white primaries, right? Mm. And the way in which white voters were uh, forced to always vote on one issue, namely, what is to be the status of black people in the United States? What is to be the status of black people in the state of Georgia? And he sort of sums this sort of up with the following. Anything that would divide white folk in opinion or action is taboo. And only personal feuds survive as the issues of political campaigns. Mm. So this seems to be like a profound point that has some purchase today because there's an extent to which you look at some of the pundits that are talking about why Biden won, that are talking about why Georgia went blue, that are talking about what we need to do now to make sure that the two Senate seats are sort of won. The single issue seems to continue to be some version of the race flag first thesis, Mm. both by progressives and, of course, by the anti uh, the anti Biden people who then want to raise the single issue for different purposes. But Du Bois seems to say, look, the problem is the single issue thing. Mm -hmm. How can we figure out a way to put a set of issues on the table? Because we need to figure that out if we want to find some hope of building up some more unity. So what do you think, science, about this sort of suggestion that ditching the single issue might be a means toward building some bridges between the divided classes that are being exploited by capital? No, I think that's um, that's a profound point. There's, um, I think I mentioned it before, but um, there's this piece called the Art of Political Manipulation by William Riker. And he, he identifies this whole issue of um, the key for trying to divide an opponent's position is to identify the principal one dimension that the coalition is maintained on. And then you try to find something to divide it. And what's interesting is um, if maintained in a single issue, then folks would be held together. But if you could find some issue that would divide them, then you could like start to pull people towards your particular cause. And the, it, the key then becomes in finding what that dividing thing is. And I think what Du Bois lays out is the kind of 
brilliance in many respects with regards to single issue manipulation of elite whites to prevent poor whites from finding out that their economic interests are actually tied to this black community that they've been compelled to vilify. In fact, the, the one point he makes about Jim Crow was less to brand the Negro as inferior and to separate the races, but rather to flat, flatter white labor to accept public testimony of its superiority instead of higher wages and social legislation. So it's like, what better way to get whites to turn against their best interest than this single issue? And then anybody that deviated off that single issue, you then race bait them or, or call them red and all these other things. And that became interesting, right? Because then they get, they get vested in the social superiority. And then that social superiority gets manifested in all these other courtesies and statues and other things that we're now focusing in on. But all of this, we're not talking about unions. We're not talking about pay. We're not talking about food. We're not talking about shelter. We're not talking about education. We're talking about that social superiority issue. So the thing I found brilliant about this particular piece was what, what Du Bois laid out and even the payoff that white folk got was basically the same kind of trivialities in many respects that we're talking about now. So we're, you know, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs before, but um, what Du Bois said that, they, that the white folk were basically being shied away from, don't talk about pay worry about these black people. Don't talk about food. Let's talk about these black people. Don't talk about shelter. Let's talk about these black people. Mm. The thing that they got was they got labels, Mr. And Mrs. They got streetcars. They got statues. They got all these other things. And that becomes the focal point of what we now are addressing. And we can't get to this other issue, but underlying all of this kind of cultural capital, underlying all of those issues are some bread and butter issues that poor black and white folk could get around and mobilize around, but they've been so significantly divided historically because of this single issue orientation. That's just some profound analysis. Mm, mm. Man. So let me, let me hit you with this. Let me hit you with this science. There's a, there's another piece of it. And I just, we already touched on it, but I, I wanted to sort of, I want to make sure that we, we give it a uh, proper due and, and sufficient uh, amplification. So I think it's, it's easy for people to see how um, it's easy for people to see. I mean, if you let me indulge in the use of a label for a minute, although I know our larger point is to raise some questions about the use of labels. You will say, Jeff. It, it's easy to see how at least some segments of the of the Republican part of the of the political right have used the 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 race the race flag to uh, to stoke division. It, it, indeed, uh, looking at an op-ed in the Times today by uh, Paul Krugman, uh, or I think it maybe showed up yesterday. But the, the title is "What's Not the Matter with Georgia?" Mm. And in the in the op-ed, his sort of diagnosis says, "Well, basically, look." Um, when we look at Georgia, one of the things we see going on now is we see that the state has become highly urbanized. And that means it's got a highly educated population that tends to go for Democrats. Right. So he's, he's pointing to this sort of demographic shift in the state of Georgia, in Atlanta in particular, in the suburbs surrounding Atlanta. Now, what he says is he says when you look at the GOP uh, uh, agenda, he says it's been relentlessly plutocratic. Tax cuts for the rich, benefit cuts for everyone else. The party has, however, sought to win over voters who aren't rich. Here's the key. By taking advantage of intolerance, mm. racial hostility, of course, but also opposition to social change. Now, what I, what I sort of want to hear science is your take that this can actually serve both sides. That is the race first flag also does some work for the Democratic Party in a way that Du Bois might ultimately say is going to be equally distracting. Break that down for us, science. I mean, 
last episode we talked about um brother cloud and his discussion yeah. of of the soul of america mm-hmm. that i found very powerful in many respects because it resonates with so many people right um we talked about you know how many hits he was receiving and how many people were resonating with the message and that he's going to be called upon in many respects but this soul conversation cuz mm. i i found the conversation about america's soul i mean this is directly playing to what it is that du bois was talking about i mean we don't talk about america's refrigerator we don't talk about america's wallet mm. we don't talk about america's bank mm. and you know and that all these need to be seen as largely empty I mean, what are we searching for soul for? <laughs> why, why is soul the thing that is in need of? It's like we need to see where the contents of our refrigerator, wallet, and bank went. Mm. And so, so this effort to kind of look for the soul just seems to be- You're not a soul man, science? You're not a soul man? Is that what you're telling our audience? Not, not relative to refrigerator, wallet, or bank, man. I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like yo, I'm this, this, this is why like, I, I just occupied the space of the bottom part of Maslow's hierarchy. I'm just like, oh, no, no, for Maslow to be right, right? You're just like, you need to have some basic human necessities dealt with first. Mm. Food, clothing, mm. shelter. With mm. those handled, we could then address other things like soul. Mm. Now, you would tell me that the soul is a replacement for empty refrigerator, wallet, or bank. Okay. But I think that's only going to go so far before the body kicks in and be like, no, I need food and water to continue. So this move towards the race card, towards the race flag is fascinating because then we get into discussions of like, you know, Biden pissing somebody off because he, he, he had a sense of what blackness was. Okay. So then we're talking about that. Or we have, um, where everyone's upset because of um, a couple of rappers coming out in, in, in their economic affiliation with the message that is Trump without identifying it, right? They, they, weren't, they weren't saying that they wanted to get paid and they didn't want anybody to mess with their money. They didn't go the economic route. What they did was they were just kind of championed as like black folk that were out there that were in this zone of like, soul. So they weren't seen as economic beings. So that's an interesting way to kind of view them. Mm. We were viewing them as a racial or ethnic category, which is fascinating because it's just like, no, these people talking about their money right now. We need to get, we need to get that understanding or the conversation we had about like Hispanics, right. And why they weren't necessarily that favorable to people coming across the border who they viewed as economic opponents, again, Mm. in line with the the Boisean critique. And so it's just an inability to kind of like, highlight the economic dimensions that underlie our existence that is hidden by this race first flag dynamic where it's just like um uh it's it's fascinating to see it consistently play out and the inability of folks to actually take this economic turn Mm. to talk about wages health and homelessness and other types of things because to do that invites some problems Man, science, 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 man. I, I don't know. I got to I gotta decide for a minute, man, how, how far I'm going to walk down this road with you right now. Because you know you know you're about to get hit, man, on social media. I, it's the, the fire is coming because this now is where the, the whole issue of police and politics comes in, of course. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the point we're making, I suppose, is that there's a certain irony that... Um, Although Krugman is here talking about how the GOP has utilized the race first flag to serve the interests of wealth generation by creating racial hostility. You're sort of suggesting that the, the Democrats or the, you know, the, liberal, the liberal left has also taken advantage of the race first flag to create, to, 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 to create a basis for unification, which isn't always sort of sufficiently illuminating to the ways in which people have common interests. So, for example, the way we see that here is just think of the setup with Krugman's piece. It's about the rural voters and the urban voters Hmm. and the implication. Whenever somebody says urban, what do they mean? Science. (laughs) <laughs> they mean black folk yeah <laughs> always, when always. They say, when they say rural i mean you the scientist not me when they say rural they mean white folks so it's right. like it's just a proxy for the race first flat exactly. so but now this is where the policing comes in because the line you just ran you they're gonna come they're gonna come at you from one of two ways 
they're going to say, oh, oh, this sounds, this smacks of socialism to me. You, mm-hmm. You're one of these Bernie folks. We're we not buying that. You know, this is America. We can't go that route. You know, we red, but we not that red. <laughs> I guess that's the way they want to put it. Right. And of course, Du Bois, Du Bois got hit with that, too, and, and many other thinkers in, in the black yeah. radical tradition. Now, the other way they're going to come at you. From, and, and, and who's going to come at you this way? The, the, the black left may come at you or some segments of it. Hey, brother, let me ask you a question, man. I mean, are, are you a black Republican or something? Yeah. Are, are you are you are you a black conservative? I mean, we heard that 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 joint by Jay Z. I mean, are you are you a black Republican? You rolling like that? You rolling like Kanye? Well, how you rolling? Mm-hmm. And so then there's the sort of demonization move. Yeah. Right. And Biden just gave his speech, his first speech as president elect, and he sort of admonished us against demonizing our political opponents. Yeah. Right. Biden said, "Look, we could disagree, but that don't make us enemies. That don't make the other people demons. But in effect." That you're a socialist or you're a black Republican is sort of how the policing goes. And that's where the name calling comes in and people start taking heat. Yeah. We know our dear sister AOC been taking a lot of heat. Seriously. You know, she's she been taking a lot of heat on this very point, right? By blaming the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party for why the Democrats didn't have a bigger victory. Yeah. Because there was too much sort of socialism as this undercurrent of her wing of the Democratic Party. Break this down for me. How do you feel about the policing of politics, Science? You worried about that? I mean, I mean, this this gets to this gets to our point about we need a politics without labels. Mm. We need a politics without gross simplification. Mm. But I mean, basically I'd love to see on a survey at one point, what do you believe communism and socialism is? Because if mm. 40% of Americans believe that the sun rotates around the earth, I'm betting that not many people know what actually communism and socialism is or the variance of socialism. They, we could ask them, what, what, what does a conservative mean? What's a Republican mean? What's a Democrat mean? I don't think many people have these these understandings of politics down. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, this data backs that up. And this becomes problematic because that means the minute someone uses the label, then that's, that's a conversation stopper that eliminates that eliminates discourse, that eliminates interaction. So rather than being an opening, we need to not use these labels so that we could actually get to a space where we can have an opening because things are getting closed off. And so if we can get to this politics without labels, and that's why, you know, our Ptolemaic move is so, is so important in many respects, because we're just talking about politics, economics, and cultural issues. And asking people if they think things are fine, if they require some change, a little change, or a lot of change to get us at, to, the, to the meat of the thing, right? And so AOC gets in trouble, right? Because folks came at her being like, yo, you're talking about healthcare. You're talking about restructuring the economy. You're, you're discussing housing. What are you, socialists? Okay, ends conversation. So we, we, we then stop evaluating these issues to figure out, it's like, um, sh- do you think everyone would like healthcare? I mean, back to Maslow. Do you think everybody would like some food? Are there problems with food distribution? Are there problems with healthcare distribution? I mean, so it ends up interrupting an analysis, right? And, and, I, and I, you know, AOC's pushback actually was really, it's like, you know, what, what y'all need to do is you need to update your technologies of, of reaching out and messaging and so forth. And, you know, we need to not ban the more effective people at mobilizing. I wish she had pushed back substantively, been like, you know what? What we need to have is a more fundamental critique of the, of the political economy, not just in the United States, but globally to figure out exactly how and where people can fit in in a more humane manner. And so we've even the, the attack on her has, uh, has eliminated conversation rather than uh, leading to an elaboration on what the points are and figuring what things are out. But I mean, what was she, what, what, you know, AOC, I'm a huge fan now, but she's got this, she made this comment in, in the Times, I think a couple of days ago, she's like, we need an anti-racist, deep canvassing of this country. So she's calling for reaching out to find out where in Maslow hierarchy of needs people want to be and use that as a basis for creating a mandate to then determine what it is that we should do. And so if everyone's if everyone's running around scared about getting called out as this or that, and that's just going to lead to them, you know, getting reduced invitations and potentially losing their jobs or back in the day, just getting beat up. 
if everyone's scared about engaging and talking about topics, then we need to drop these labels and get back to discussing the content. Mm. All right. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. So let's, let's see if we can put some of these pieces together and then, and then, and then push it, push it forward a little bit with, with some more science, man. So, okay. We, we, we start with this question of whether it's irresponsible to fly the race first flag. And you can think about that. Certainly that question, if you're, if you're a progressive and we, we've sort of thought about it from that perspective. And, and now we've, we've worked through a little bit of the analysis of Du Bois on Georgia as he reflected on Georgia's past, you know, for us today, thinking about Georgia in 1924 and how he sort of sized up the state. Now we try to update that a bit for today. And we see one of the things that still seems to be in play is a focus on the single issue or some people would say the defining issue of our day, the problem of, of, of racism in America that's still with us. Mm. And then we get the, the, the people who say yes to that, the people who say no to that, and they divide themselves up in a certain way. Now, for people who come along and say, look, we need to remember this lesson, the single issue, that's the problem. Human beings, they have certain needs, they're gonna eat, they wanna feed themselves, they wanna provide shelter for their family, they want to create opportunity for their for their posterity to go on and have a decent life, a better life than what the parents had. Hopefully you think about all these basic set of things that really don't get aired out sufficiently in the, in the political public marketplace. And they don't get aired out in part because people are boxed in to the race first flag flying. And so it happens on the left. It happens on the right. And anybody that comes along and tries to take issue with it, they're going to get called names. They're going to get demonized. They're going to take a lot of heat. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, OK, how do we get at some of the core information about what these needs are, how people understand their needs and what they want? What becomes possible science when we lower the race first flag and open up, open up ourselves to the need to understand the demos better what mm. becomes possible so you mentioned our ptolemaic approach for our audience but maybe we could put a little more detail on that now by talking a bit about the data we've collected on atlanta in particular mm. and some of the other cities in the united states and see if we can see if we can extract a couple of gems from that data to help us sort of put a finer point on the importance of lowering the flag, trying to get a better read on what the demos is actually feeling, thinking, wanting, and needing. Mm. Good one, man. Um, so what's interesting, right, is um, if we start to try to mm. excavate people's understandings of what they think the problem is, what the, what are the, what's, the, what's the population's diagnosis of the problem? Um, what world would they like to move towards? What's their prognosis? What, what do they think is the way to get there? What was interesting for us to do was to basically kind of strip away from labels and to actually ask individuals what their opinions were. So quite frequently, a lot is assumed. Um, you'll be asked a question, um, you know, um, do you view yourself as being on the left or the right? Do you view yourself as being um, more conservative or more democratic on some scale? And then, a conclusion is made about your opinions about a variety of different things as a function of how you answer these questions. We, we kind of pushed those envelopes a little bit and we asked people about topic areas and we just like, uh, you know, are you, are you fine with how politics is basically currently structured or do you believe it needs minor changes or major changes? And then when someone identified that they wanted to change, we then asked them, well, what do you think should be changed? We don't narrow it with a list. We don't try to force it. We left it open-ended and allowed individuals to provide us with that text. And now, now the onus is on us to kind of like basically work through that material and figure out exactly what are the things that people were saying. Um, so we did this within 12 cities. And, and, and what we'd get from that answer or what we get from the answers to these questions is, is quite, is quite complex in many respects. And so I'll just give a little bit of flavor here and we'll, and we'll post it up on 
the website doing the knowledge. Make sure, make sure you hit Atlanta in particular. Let's get let's get some yeah. let's get some nuggets yeah. on Atlanta in particular, given that Georgia's you know at the center of everybody's political um, uh, uh, conversation these days. Yeah, and so um, politically, Atlanta is interesting to the extent to which. Um, uh, so we asked the question, um, do you think things are fine, need minor change or a major change in politics? What's intriguing about um, the Atlanta response is um, clearly you have like um, a majority of people who identify themselves as being on the right. 50, 55 percent say everything's cool. We don't need any change at all. Much lower. You find few people that view themselves on the left and neutrals, 25 percent see things as okay. So off the top of the, off, 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 off from jump street, we get a general sense that the right is generally satisfied, but it's only 55, 55%, right? So it's not like all of the right is fine with everything that's going down. Um, And neutrals and people on the left, much less satisfied, which makes sense. But so I found that interesting from the perspective of, I would have expected that individuals that view themselves as being on the right would be more satisfied. Mm. And I'd view people that being on the left as being even less satisfied than 25%. Um, we get we get here because we ask this question. And so left, right is normally about your political orientation presently or what it's been. It's not like perspective and evaluation. It's like, what's what do you think is wrong and what are you willing to do about that? And so our question lets us get at kind of some magnitude of change. Now, as we look at minor change, you get the right is is basically up for minor change. We wouldn't we wouldn't be that surprised about that. <clears throat> but people on the left and neutrals are are slightly below that. And when we look at major change, the left is for major change, mm. close to sixty percent. Mm. But interestingly, neutrals in Atlanta, in particular, fifty percent of neutrals are for major change. And this becomes important, right? Because left is clearly associated with Democrats, but it's not just reduced to them. Right is generally associated with Republicans, but again, it's not reduced to them. And neutrals, they can go either way. Mm. That mm. becomes important as we don't have a, a, a viable third party. Mm. So, so exactly which direction they go in would be important for us to kind of explore in many ways. And so in terms of the economic, that becomes another dynamic, right? That becomes another spot. And so there we see something similar in terms of uh, general degrees of satisfaction. In fact, incredible satisfaction for the right in Atlanta. S- near 60% is, it thinks everything's fine. Mm. And in juxtaposition to that, 25% of the left and neutrals think everything's fine. What's interesting is regards to minor change, nobody is really there. 25%. For the right and the left, it's neutrals who are more in line with wanting minor change. Mm. Major change, okay, more or less what we'd expect. Mm. The left, 60% again. Neutrals, 40%. The right, 10. They don't don't want any change at all. And these variations become extremely important to explore because you can see that there's... um, what I'm giving you right now are averages, right? But there's ranges of values that become important because some of them overlap. Mm. And that overlapping becomes extremely important for us because then we, we move away from these monolithic conceptions of left and right and even neutral. Because we have people that are overlapping interests despite the fact that they've got this political label or affiliation. Mm. And one of the reasons we went with left and right over Democrat and conservative was to get yeah. people think more abstractly about what they thought about politics and economics and other things. And so, we view ourselves differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, this is good stuff, man. It, it's going to be good, obviously, to stare at some charts, right? To just get a, a visual sort of, uh, a visual sense of what this all looks like. It, it's, you know, these numbers can sometimes be daunting and, yeah. and somewhat abstract. So we certainly going to provide some visuals. But let me let me just sort of maybe naively science, you know, let me just why doesn't some of what you just said add up to a case for a pragmatic centrist politics? 
right? Um, so, you know, some reading of Biden is to see this as sort of a return to Obama. Obama sort of governed as a pragmatist, centrist, right? You can't rock the boat too, too much because we got to get people on board. Yeah. And does, does this preliminary data that we're pulling out of Atlanta support that conclusion, right? The, the way forward is the way, the way down the middle as much as we can. Mm. It's not the it's not the way of AOC, and it's it's not the way of 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 McConnell and 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 company, right? That's a tough one. I mean, so in terms of in terms of sheer practicality of what these results suggest, um, I think this is why we've seen the race to the middle in American politics, right? Mm. It's like you're going to go for the medium voter because that's where you're going to get the most votes. Um, but this is, I think, highly problematic to the extent to which this leads us on an ever present battle for the current situation. Mm. We never get to address that which is deeply affecting and impacting negatively Americans. So mm. we never get to we never get to the wealth gap. We never get to the chronic health problems that affect the poor more so than anybody else. We never, get, we never get to, I, I mean, we'll put up, we'll put up the figures, but there are these interesting research that talks about Americans are largely condemned to the economic group that they're born within. We never get to discuss that. And if we think that is right, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to touch on your area, <laughs> you know, and sage out for a second, but we never get to the broader conversation of what kind of world would we like to live in? Mm. Would we like to live in a world where social mobility is possible mm. because the one we live in is not. Mm. Probabilistically speaking, you are going to die in the group that you were born into. And since things are stacked against us in many ways, do we think that is legitimate or do we think that should be fundamentally altered? We never get to that discussion if we keep talking about practical politics. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to I don't care about the labels that might be applied. I don't, I don't care how folks can kind of go after me in many respects. But it's just like I'd like to be part of a society that raises these questions about what kind of what kind of world we'd like to live in, what kind of society we'd like to have, and what are we willing to get there? Because you hear people going off about like, oh, yo, taxes are going to be raised. And what's funny is like, you know, they make it sound like that's the word. They make it sound like the British are coming back. They make it sound like, you know, like taxes are for a reason. And like I, I was the same way, right? When I first looking at Scandinavian countries and looking at taxation, I'm just like, good goodness, you got to be kidding me. I'm not giving up that much money. But then you start thinking about what the money's going towards. You start thinking about what the society is trying to do. You start thinking about our responsibility in connection with other people rather than just try to get yourself paid. Then that leads to a different orientation you have towards taxation, mm. polity, civic mm. responsibility. Yeah. So so let me let me hit this, man. And you you saging out today, man. Damn. I know, I know. We switching, we switching up. <laughs> you saging the hell out on us today, man. Uh, so listen, man, since you didn't step out there, I mean, one thesis, this is very provocative. Like, so this politics, this politics toward how'd you put it? This politics toward the center, this, yeah. this pragmatic politics toward the center may well be a a fail-safe structurally in American democracy. Mm -hmm. It's like a fail-safe system that just kicks in and prevents us from really tackling these more substantive issues with, with, with a more suitable politics that's much more complicated than the single-issue politics that we typically see associated with uh, Flag flying, particular race first flag flying. Yep. It's like a fail safe that just kicks in. And we might get, we might get like a set of elections where you, you go from, you can go from an Obama to a Trump or, you know, Bush to Clinton and you, and you just sort of get these sort of movement to movements off the center. But then eventually you sort of just come back to the center. Yeah. And this just sort of goes on in a cycle. And is, is that is that kind of the picture, man, that you're painting? Oh, I mean, without question. I mean, and, and for me, what becomes interesting is like um, yeah. we miss some underlying similarities 
that are otherwise not paid attention to. So military expenditures have been more or less steady for decades across administrations. Military adventurism from the United States has been mm. steady yeah, we, over time across administrations. Yeah. And so there's some, there's some similarities we end up missing and not paying attention to because we're paying attention to some of these other things. And there's, I mean, there's, a, there's been a rightening of America. I mean, from, from, the, from the public opinion distributions and organizations and people we had in the 60s to the present, America has moved to the right, generally speaking, in terms of our politics. Mm. And, and, and yet we still use the same labels, left and right, as if it means the same thing of what it used to mean. Mm. But it's not even close to that. And part of that was state repression, right? Purging the civil society of, of people they didn't want to hear about. And mm. so of the remaining opinions of the remaining individuals and institutions and ideas, the move to the center of that particular constellation is to the right of what we could have moved towards in the 60s and 70s. Mm. And that broader conversation is completely ignored because we don't really have a sense of that marketplace of ideas. Hey, so the big, the big one, big takeaway then from from our rap today, man, is this this need for politics without labels. Mm. Now, I can already imagine what some of the sages out there going to say. They're going to say, "Well, y'all, y'all trafficking in labels too." Right. This was this, this this working class business or, you know, what's what's this? Isn't that a label? So you're not really giving up labels. You're just advocating for certain kinds of labels. So that's an objection that we're going to mm-hmm. certainly run into. But, you know, and then and my fourth sort of a restatement of, of the thesis. Um, but mm-hmm. setting that aside for just just for now, um, if if basically we see things this way, uh, namely, we can think about the short-term science, and for some people right now, the short-term is January, and the short-term is, for, for, for Democrats for sure, is getting control of the Senate, Yeah, so that we got a chance at getting some legislation passed that can actually help folks and transform transform uh, uh, lives in a more sort of substantive way than what we get when there's not sufficient legislative uh, uh, control. Mm-hmm. And then there's long term. Yeah. Now, in the short term, I don't even need to see the op-eds, but we know what they're going to look like. We're going to get a whole set of op-eds that argue for some version of practicality. Yep. Keep the flag flying for now because we need to nail down these two Senate seats and we can yeah. worry about all that other deep stuff another time. Now, one, I want you to sort of speak to how that argument typically plays out and how the can keeps getting kicked down the road. Right. Exactly. But 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 then. The, the, so the longer term issue is to say what I think AOC has been saying. But of course, the demonization is 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 sort of real heavy right now. Right. And so that that message is getting sort of repressed and submerged. Mm-hmm. The long term play is it's not just about this election or any one election. Yeah. It's about the long game. It's about the future. Yeah. And to to play the long game, you're definitely going to have to get over the single issue and come up with a richer way to model the marketplace of ideas that is sort of we think uh along the lines of what we're trying to do with with Ptolemy. So, so go ahead and take us home on, on this point here, uh, uh, science, about what we're going to get if we keep doing some of the same old, same old and the need to turn the corner, man, and go in the direction that AOC and others are trying to sort of push for. Ah, man, that's, bro- that's brilliant, man. I mean, really, it's a juxtaposition between kind of like what is practical and what is needed. Mm. And we never get to a discussion of what is needed because we're too busy fighting for the next election, which is deep, right? Because it's Senate seats for what? For what end? I mean, so what was interesting for me with regards to the, you know, the the Trump stepping in and then trying to dismantle things that, that, that Obama had to put together is over time. Stuff get canceled, right? It's just like, I, I never thought I'd live in a world where Roe v. Wade would be even talked about in the manner that the folks talk about it now. It's just like, it's so tentative. There's movements against it. 
And then you start realizing that it's just like, okay, so over time, you could, you could legislate a fascinating world, but over time, it could be deconstructed. Okay, well, was that what you had in mind initially? And I don't, I don't think so. And so we ended up spending all this time talking about the next election, the next election, because you know what's going to happen. Okay, so Biden's going to get in. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about getting him four years. Okay, guess what? And then we, we talk about getting his VP eight years. So no one's going to want to say anything critically because they don't want to interfere with that 12-year program. Mm. Okay, what's going to happen 12 years from now if we've not addressed wealth inequality or some of these other fundamental issues that are corrosive to the nation? I mean, Trump was able to take advantage of the lack of a program to deal with disenfranchised people from companies and manufacturing that we had in this country for decades. They went away, they left, and those people left in pain he spoke to. And so we need to speak to them. We need to figure out exactly what is their pain in addition to the pain of the other poor folk that we've basically also been ignoring. And so that leads us to get back to this issue of understanding what is needed, which we can't get to because we're too busy fighting the next battle. Mm. Man, science, you didn't drop that knowledge today on us. Uh, and, you know, I guess I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wrap up where I started, man. Georgia, Georgia. The whole day through. Just an old sweet song that keeps Georgia on my mind. Well, now, man, that's that's what I got to say for today. And, and my mind is filled not only with that sweet song, but with the wisdom that we get from the boys, the wisdom that we get from thinking about that past and how it relates to our present and the way forward. And that's my piece for the day, science. I hear you, man. I just want to add that the future is with these people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the youth, those youth are pushing it forward. Amen. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace.